This morning we're going to uh, look at the glory of God, which in this passage is his strength and also his goodness. And we're going to see that because of that, we should come to adoration of God. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 19, where our attention will be directed to the glory of God and how wonderful that is for us. We will see how God's glory is the key to prayer. So if you'd like to, uh, in the church Bible, I think it's page 259 uh, for Psalm 19. But if you'd like to turn to Psalm uh, 19, I'll read all 14 verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth, to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So we're starting with uh, verses uh, 1 through 6, the greatness of God. That's Roman numeral 1 on your outline. If God was not great, if he was not powerful, then how could he help us? He might sympathize and empathize. He might be a very good guy and everybody's favorite fellow, but if we needed someone with more strength and ability than we already have, why would we call on him? But God is great, greater than all of creation. Remember that he spoke and there was light. Now, I can go over to the light switch and I can flip it, and sometimes light comes on. You know, but this is just entirely different. This is like there wasn't any light anywhere. And he said, let there be light. And wham! All of it came into existence. This is omnipotence. Let's look at Psalm 119 carefully. I'm going to go through verse by verse here. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We go outside in the day and we look up and there's this, um, sometimes it's gray and overcast if you live in State College, but sometimes it's uh, 
it's sunny and blue. Other times it's like these white fluffy clouds rolling by and everybody's got to get a picture of it. Um, it's, it's amazing. And then at night we go out and we look and all of a sudden it's changed completely, isn't it? It's just absolutely non-colored. It's, it's black and there's little speckles all through it and sometimes there's a moon. Uh, it's amazing. What does that tell us about God as we look out there? As you see these things happening in the sky overhead. God really wants to be known. He wrote his, uh, it's, uh, it's as though he hired a skywriter to write up in the heavens, I'm here guys. It's a little bit hard to miss the, the sky. I mean, literally, you would have to live in a cave, right? He wants particularly his glory to be known. He writes it in the heavens so that all can see. Years and years ago, the uh, first Soviet cosmonaut, uh, when he got back, uh, hastened to inform us all that there was no God because he had looked and he had not seen him. You know, I'm not at all surprised, but my question would be, was would he have recognized God if he saw him? And I think obviously the answer is no. Um, as, as, as you see the amazing creation that God has created, what other conclusion could there be than there is an amazing creator? But like I say, this poor fellow couldn't see it. He could ride a rocket, but he couldn't see God. Then in verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Have you ever noticed that that alteration of day and night, and one day leads to the next day, and one light, you, you know, they alternate, and there's night and day and night and day. It goes on and on. What does that tell you? Did you know that you can actually use the heavens as a clock? In fact, for most of recorded history, men have used the heavens for days and months and seasons. I mean, it's just amazing. You look up there and that thing is amazingly regular. It's constantly varying. Each day is a different length than the one before it, the one after it. And yet, if you know what you're doing, you can predict exactly how long each day is going to be. In uh, in Galatians uh, chapter 4, verse 10, Paul speaks of men worshiping these things that are not gods. Now, this is the sad thing about the way men respond to this. Rather than looking at the heaven and seeing this finely tuned clock, that never be, needs to be adjusted for daylight savings time. And the battery never runs down. I mean, it is a, a phenomenal clock that he's got up there. Men will worship God's clock before they worship him. <laughs> Isn't that staggering? Men would rather worship God's clock rather than go to the logical conclusion that there is a clockmaker up there. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
God speaks a universal language, even though human speech was split into many languages at Babel. His speech in the heavens is still heard today. His speech is clear to everyone. It doesn't matter whether you speak English or whether you speak Spanish or Swahili or some other crazy language. You can still look at the heavens and understand that there is a creator and that there is a God. Sometimes people object. Verse 4, the voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. Sometimes people object to Christ saying, well, what about those who have never heard? I guess the real answer ought to be, are you saying they've never seen the sky? Are you saying they've never seen the heavens? The answer is, is that God has spoken everywhere for all time. And in case we miss the point, we can go to Romans chapter 1, where Paul makes this point explicitly. Their voice has been heard to the ends of the earth. And then moving on, in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. You know, one thing I really appreciate about the the poetry in the Bible, which um, this, of course, is, is how strong the images are. And how vivid and and absolutely entertaining. So the the psalmist is he's not saying there's actually a tent that the sun hides in. He's saying it's like there was a tent up there, and the sun is hiding out in its tent, and all of a sudden comes out in the morning, and it's like the lights come on. Um, and it's like a strong man running his course. And God's strength is revealed as we see the sun rising and setting each day. The sun is so strong that some have foolishly become sun worshippers when they should have seen a heavenly sign pointing to the Creator. Um, many many people don't know this, but the Egyptian pyramids and the obelisks were all built to worship the sun. And I mean, they were built in, t- in terms of honoring pharaohs, but they they were the construction of pharaohs. And the idea was to picture the way the sun's rays come down at an angle when it peeks through the clouds. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And we see God's eagerness for his bride when the sun bursts forth at dawn. Talks about like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, I don't know about you. Some of you here are married. Some of you can remember when you got married. Uh, I certainly can. And, uh, you know, I really wanted to marry Bonnie. I mean, there is no doubt about that. I want to marry Bonnie. I definitely, uh, I definitely had a plan and I wanted to do everything to make that plan work. And, uh, when he finally pronounced his man and wife, she grabbed hold of my arm. And we charged down that aisle. I mean, it's good nobody stepped out. They would have gotten run over. And <laughs> we got the in there, and she said, where are you going so fast? <laughs> I was like, I'm getting away. <laughs> so this uh, this verse about the bridegroom leaving his chamber, it uh, it really speaks to me because that actually was the kind of feelings I had when 
when Bonnie finally married me. And thinking about, like, well, what is a strong man like when he runs his course with joy? Anybody see the Super Bowl this year? Have you saw it? Did you did you remember once when the Eagles won? <laughs> Do you remember what things were like in the locker room and on the field? And I mean, they had just finished this epic struggle, right? They had given it all, and they won. And they're jumping around like a bunch of teenagers. They're just going nuts out there. And that's uh, just the picture to me of a strong man running his course. And yet, and yet the sun is more powerful than all of that. The sun is, uh, is so incredibly powerful, and God's strength is revealed in the power of the sun. In verse 6 it says, Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God shows us his desire to be known. How would we dare approach him otherwise? I mean, let's face it. God is pretty powerful. And, and we are not. Um, you know, say you, uh, say you saw the President of the United States and it was just an unexpected thing you weren't planning on. All of a sudden he was there, he's surrounded by, you know, all the Secret Service and everything. Your first thought is to run up and grab his hand, right? <laughs> Would you do that? I want to be there when you do it. I want to be behind something solid when you do it. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. And that's because the man is well protected. And we all know that. And it would never occur to us to go out there and just run up and grab his hand. God is infinitely more powerful than that. Who would dare approach him otherwise? God's greatness includes his power everywhere. His presence is everywhere and through all time. This doubtless should move us to fall down and worship him. It should certainly move us to fear him, but it might not move us to love him. There have been uh, the presidents of the United States, very, very powerful men. The, in fact, there's um, one of the things that he's sometimes called as the most powerful man in, in the world. And there have been some of them that, uh, that I really respected. And just uh, thinking about some of the things they did, I just get, what can I say, I get emotional about some that uh, have really done a good job. But then again, there are some others. And to tell you what, if we had just skipped over their years in office and it didn't make it into the history books, I would be just as happy. There have been some that I flat out think were an embarrassment. But God in his power should certainly move us to fear him, but it might not move us to love him. We may respect him, but we might not approach him. Even though he so clearly wants to be known, we might be too uncomfortable to actually get to know him. So having given us this, given us this overwhelming vision of God's greatness, the psalmist goes on to show us his goodness. His greatness is just the beginning of his self-revelation. 
and is incomplete without his goodness. So we've talked about the uh, the greatness of God, and uh, and certainly He is uh, um, stands above all creation in His greatness. Now we'll look more at the at the goodness of God. This section in verses seven through eleven talks about aspects of the Lord, such as His law, testimony, precepts, commands, commandment, fear, and rules. Now, each of these things describes an attribute of God or an aspect of God that is part of his glory and also particularly describes its impact on us. That impact is best described as his goodness. The goodness of God is what helps us connect closely with him. Have you never noticed how how grateful we are when people are good to us? Well, some of us are just ingrates, but um, hopefully you are grateful when someone is good to you. So let's look at this. In verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Why would something that is perfect revive the soul? The, the idea is this. We live in a, in a broken world. And people often describe our situation as broken people living in a broken world. How often do things turn out less than what you had hoped? How often are you able actually to do anything perfectly? I personally get weary of all the weary of all the brokenness around me. And I totally understand it when anybody else gets weary of all that. I particularly get weary of my own brokenness. Some days I wish I would just do like my mother told me. I ought to straighten up and fly right. An illustration of this. um, Over the years I have fought the uh, Battle of the Bulge over and over again. You know what I mean, right? And sometimes I've done better, but sometimes I've I've done worse. And uh, here recently, I found out uh, some new things about that. I had always uh, followed the official U.S. government guidelines for diet, right? They've got that. It's all written out. And basically, and you've seen like the food pyramid and and, uh, you've seen the food dish. They've divided it up into... categories and the the big category that that you're supposed to eat like most of is uh what is it the uh, uh, grains and vegetables yeah remember that now some of you uh, are into agriculture here right now if you want to prepare animals for market what do you feed them grains because you want to fatten them up right corn right that works for people, too. You do, you do exactly what those U.S. government guidelines are, and I guarantee you that you will gain weight if you're most people. I'm, there are people who have been blessed with better genetics than I have. And so this was my struggle for years and years and years. 
is trying to do what was right, doing my dead level best to follow those things, and slowly every year it just keeps climbing. This was not funny. So when I think about something that's perfect, that really revives my soul. And here, and you can ask me about it later if you want, but here in the last uh, couple of years, I have uh, found that there are many, many people that find that these uh, federal guidelines for diets are baloney and are doing something different. And I'm now doing something different. And even though I've been diagnosed with diabetes, my blood tests are all non-diabetic. So I'm pretty excited about that. Maybe something is finally going to work right. And uh, the reason I thought of that is when I thought to myself, where is an experience that I've had lately where the thing that was supposed to be perfect just failed? And that's that's like immediately came to mind. Is is trying your best to do it right, and it's still not working. But the law of the Lord is perfect, and you know what? That experience that I've had really has revived my soul. I have just felt so much better um, because of that experience. Second half of verse seven: the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This world often sees changing and uncertain. This verse shows us that we can rely on him to make us wise. All of us are born simple, undeveloped. We learn wisdom, understanding based on God's omniscience only from him. When I was a young man, I had become very conscious of not having all the answers. And that's because I started out thinking I, thinking that I had all the answers. And there were some folks that explained to me in no uncertain terms that I did not. Sensitized me to that issue. And uh, I was reminded of this because we, we just uh, studied the book of Proverbs here at Grace Fellowship. And one thing that, that I had done was look at Proverbs chapter 2. And see where it talks about calling out the wisdom, asking for insight. And it dawned on me what I was supposed to do was ask questions. And I just remember, it it just really struck me. It was a real revolution in my life to ask questions. It was amazing how much you could find out. It's like there were answers to be had. And that uh, it was actually a wiser thing to ask than to just state things. I'm still working on that one. You can pray for me. So God's God makes the wise, making makes wise the simple, and we can get that from Him studying His Word and asking others around. In verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. We all have a a relative moral sense. Uh, The problem is that we don't know actually, you know, what is good and what is bad. It's amazing how many times where um, I'm doing something and I think, yeah, I'm doing what's right here. 
and somebody else will come up and they'll say, no, 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 you're not doing us right. And then we have a discussion. They're usually right. Um, but we, we all have that issue in life that we have a, a, a moral sense. Uh, we, we want to justify what we've done. Even serial killers in prison, when they're interviewed, want to explain how what they did was right. And everybody else is sitting there with their mouths hanging open. What is wrong with this guy? And actually, it's just doing the normal human thing. Uh, that uh, when we've done wrong, we try to make excuses. But God has an absolute moral sense. Often we have uncertainty in our hearts. When he teaches us what is right, we can be certain and our hearts can rejoice. It's always hard for us to admit being wrong. But it's also very good when I do it. And it's amazing how much struggle and peace I can get just by saying, okay, yeah, I was wrong. You're right. It's funny, it's never easy for me to do that. I always envy people that can uh, do that easily. It's always hard. But it's right. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, our problem is that our viewpoint is intrinsically self-centered. God's viewpoint is pure because he is intrinsically not self-centered. Now, it sounds crazy. He's the most powerful being in the world. He's the one being ever through all of time and eternity really has a right to be a proud guy, a proud person, or whatever, of God, you know? I mean, he is God, right? And yet you think of how humble he actually is. If you were going to, uh, to send your son down to redeem the world, would you have sent him as a little baby, a helpless baby, to be at the, at the mercy of these pagans down there on earth? Would you have sent him to be, uh, to be laid in an animal trough for a, for a crib? I mean, no way. That, if, if, if most of us had sent our son down to earth, it wouldn't have just been a few angels announcing things to shepherds. It would have been the biggest entrance ever had in the whole planet, and everybody would have known. We have permitted him to be crucified for the sins of the world. Uh, I mean, I'm really, really grateful that he did it. But, um, no. And yet God is so humble that he will lay himself down for us. That's just absolutely remarkable. So when we adopt his viewpoint, our eyes are open to see what's really true because he makes it true. In other words, how do we know what's really true? It's because God has said it's true. Um, in recent days, I've I've heard of um, 
a particular lady here in State College who is um, in studying with uh, the scriptures with a good friend of mine. And one of the things that she says is, I'm just really drawn to the story about Jesus. But she says, I'm just having a real struggle because I believe in science. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so interesting that she doesn't even hear her own words. She's operating as much by faith as we are. She believes in science. Why would she believe in science? And and there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, most science actually gets it wrong most of the time. Some of you here, here are uh, have actually done some research, right? And uh, how, how many of you? And, and that research is almost always right. You come up with a, a theory, a hypothesis, and you figure out a way to test it, and sure enough, it always works. And I've heard from some of you folks that have actually been through this process that 80% of science actually is fails. It's actually wrong. That, uh, and I don't know how that number was come up with, but I was told that by some, by a professor over here. Uh, and that, uh, so why is it that people have faith in science? What they have faith in is that there is truth out there somewhere, and if we look hard enough, we can find it. Why should it be a difficult step to move from that to faith in someone who established truth? That there is a reason for there being truth out there. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans were not scientists. They believed at heart in a chaotic world. And the Romans might have come up with concrete and built some phenomenal architecture. Uh, the Greeks had some uh, logical philosophy. But when it came time to figure out what they should do next, they were busy cutting open, cutting open animals and studying their entrails and watching birds fly. So God can enlighten our eyes. He can teach us. What is really true because he is pure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now, what he means here by clean is the opposite of unclean. Clean means holy before God. Um, unclean means unholy. And particularly refers to ceremonially, ceremonially clean or ceremonially holy. But in, in this verse, it's really just a synonym. The fear of the Lord is clean because he is clean. When we fear him, he will, we will endure forever because he is forever. When we fear him, we are basically hooking our wagon to his. And that will work out. Second part of verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Only the Lord can say what is absolutely true and righteous. How wonderful that is wonderful that in our world where there is so much compromise. Um, does anybody expect that our political leaders are gonna be utterly clean? 
Is anybody surprised to find out there have been some shenanigans going on? Not at all. And that is just the opposite of the Lord. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Only the Lord can say what is absolutely true and righteous. How wonderful that is in our world where there is so much compromise. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The nature of God, who he is, is more desirable than much fine gold. Now, I'm nearer to the end of my life than I am to its beginning. And I can say from experience that a life lived to honor God is far better than any amount of things you can get. while back, um, Bonnie had had a, a negative reaction to a medication. And fortunately, we were at the hospital when that happened. And... Um, it's a very negative reaction. She started not being able to breathe. And and then, you know, we got the nurse and they gave her some more uh, anti-allergy medica- medication. And um, and it just it just was not working. Um, the, the, the rash was crawling down her arm and uh, down her throat. And they, they eventually... Sent us to the, sent it, put us into the emergency room. And, uh, that was, that was really scary. Um, it took quite a while before she could feel that she was being able to breathe better. So on the way home that night, we, we had a little talk and we were talking about how scary that was. And I mean, we didn't, you know, I'm sure the doctors could have done some other things if they had to. I'm sure she could have had a tracheotomy, a number of different things. But there's nothing like not being able to breathe to make you consider your mortality. And one of the things we we talked about is how good life had been in Christ. And how as we look back, if earlier tonight had been it, we would have had to say, thank you, God. And that's not that I would or either of us would have enjoyed that outcome. Uh, but we would have had to be grateful for it because neither of us deserve, has deserved a life as good as what we've had. So a life lived for God is incredibly sweet. Sharing God's nature is better than anything else in this life or in the next. And in verse 11, it says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. By God's word, we are warned away from danger and rewarded with great good. So we've seen the greatness of God. We've seen the goodness of God. Together, that uh, that really constitutes his glory. Now, how should we respond to that? Having seen his goodness and his greatness, what should we do about it? Well, verse 12 gives us what I think ought to be all of our first response to this. 
In verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is the essence of the gospel. Who can discern his errors? Our problem is not just that we've done wrong. Our problem is we are blind to it. We can't even see all of our sins. And if it were possible for the blood of sheep and goats to make atonement for us, you know, we could maybe do some sacrifice for all the sins we know about. What they're saying here is who can even see all of their sins? We, we are in a mess we will never get out of. <clears throat> We're not objective about ourselves. It's not just that we color outside the lines sometimes. It's that we not we don't know for sure where the lines are. So what hope for us is a Savior who can overrule the universe? The only hope we really have is if God will declare me innocent from hidden faults. <clears throat> when I came to Christ, uh, I, re- I remember clearly thinking about um, what was going on, and there was a lot that I didn't understand. One of the things that, that I remember was that I had felt like, looking back, that my whole life up to then, I had been a blind man in a dark, dark place. And that um, I'd wander around in this cave, and it was so dark you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face, and I'd trip over rocks and boulders and whatever. And then I'd see, a, then I thought I saw a faint light off over that way. And I wasn't even sure when I looked straight at it if it was there. But when I look away, I think I could see it. What else was there to do? <laughs> that was the only choice. Everything is dark. So there's a lot I didn't understand back then. But it didn't matter. It was because that was the only answer. And the the Lord declaring me innocent from hidden faults is the only answer. I also remember describing it as that I felt like I was in this this vast plain that was dark. Couldn't see anything. And wandering around out there, I I stumbled across railroad tracks. And I thought, what in the world? And all of a sudden, I saw that I had wheels that exactly fit those tracks. Well, you know what I did? I got up on those tracks and put the hammer down. I finally knew what I was for. Rolling on tracks. So the only thing that can really save us is the Lord declaring us from hidden faults. Having seen the glory of God, this Old Testament psalmist appeals to God for what we now know as the gospel. This is how we all ought to respond. And then he, then he goes on in prayer, keep back your servant. You notice here the, the per, person of address has changed in this last section here. It's the psalmist talking directly to God. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. What is the unforgivable sin? What is the unforgivable sin? It's failing to believe in Christ. When we presume that God will just pretend that we are not rebels against him, that is the ultimate presumption. 
our salvation cost him the death of his son. He gave all he had for us. God may forgive us, but he won't just forget about it. Then the psalmist says, Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great great transgression. If God declares us innocent, then we are really innocent. This is unbelievable good news. This is the solution to so many aspects of our walk with God. Do you feel guilty? Do you feel unlovely? Do you feel unrespected? Believe the gospel. If the Lord of the universe declares you innocent, declares you lovely, declares declares to you that he respects you, then you are there. That's, uh, That's like you went to the Supreme Court and they said, innocent. There's no appeal. And then he finishes with, the, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So having been declared innocent at such great cost, what else can we do other than dedicating ourselves to reflecting his glory in every aspect of our being? See, in God's glory, we come to him or we come back to him And he welcomes us. So we've seen that the glory of God, more than anything else, uh, can be contained in the idea of his greatness, his power, his might, and his goodness. And that our response to that needs to be to call on him uh, that he would declare us innocent. And that he would make the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts acceptable in his sight. Let's pray. Father, you are our hope. You are our confidence. Father, we have no real hope or any possibility of knowing you apart from what you've done. Father, we are so thankful that even... uh, So long ago, uh, over uh, over 2,500 years ago now, that even then the psalmist knew that the only hope was that you would declare us clean, that you would declare us innocent. So, Father, we come before you, trusting in your greatness and your goodness, that you will deliver us because of what Jesus did. And we pray in his name. Amen.